Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. To my knowledge, the only podcast dedicated to covering research and management in IMD. Episodes are released fortnightly and discuss published work from the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease and its sister open access journal, JAMD Reports. If you've fallen behind with your reading, then sit back, relax, and let us help you get caught up with our latest episode on the challenges of drug development in rare disease. So hello there. Now, I don't have favourite guests. They're all wonderful. But there are some who seem to always feature in popular podcasts. And I have two such people today, uh, Robin Lackman and Mark Patterson, who have together starred in podcasts with close to 2000 plays between them. And whenever they join me, we've always found ourselves talking about treatment, trials, efficacy and approval. So it's good to have them here when that's the focus of our attention as opposed to a tangent. I'd also like to welcome a first time visitor to the podcast, Dr. Sandra Sirs of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Sandra, welcome to the podcast, and Mark and Robin, welcome back. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, perhaps we could start with a very quick definition as to what makes an orphan disease and what is an orphan drug. Maybe I can have a stab at that first, James. There are definitions for rare diseases. So the Orphan Drug Act in the United States from 1983 defined a rare disease as one that affected fewer than 200,000 persons in the United States. And my colleagues, I'm sure, can chime in with the, the numbers that are used in other countries, but I think they're all similar. And orphan drugs are those which are basically used to treat rare diseases or neglected diseases. Yes, I can add to that. There are actually different definitions in different parts of the world, but the most common definition is uh, somewhere between 1 in 2,000 or 1 in 2,500 in terms of disease prevalence. But I think actually the definition, which is similar to the uh, 200,000 in the U.S. definition, I think the definition of orphan diseases is one of the things that is currently being problematic because as we are in the era of uh, personalized medicine, what happens is you can take a subset of a subset of a subset of a common disease uh, and it becomes a rare disease. And while that is actually a helpful thing, if one is looking at increasingly better targeted pharmacotherapy targeted to whatever mutations a person has or the tumor has or, or what have you, from the point of view of orphan incentives, you know, it's probably not appropriate for orphan incentives to be granted granted to drugs for uh, lung cancer, for example, which is the uh, leading cause of uh, cancer death in North America. So I think the starting off with the question of what the definition is of a rare disease is actually a really good one, because it is something I think that has to be revisited in 2022. The orphan legislation that Mark is referring to was in 1983, I believe. That leaves me, I guess. So in Europe, orphan is one in 2000, but we're moving now from rare to ultra rare. So as Sandra was saying, you can split these things up into ever smaller pots really. And depending who you're talking to, which legislators, which payers, um, which companies, they're gonna have different definitions of what is rare that suit whatever they're doing at the time, I think. Okay, I didn't wanna run into problems quite so early on. Um, you talked about orphan disease. I think the, the thing about the orphan drugs is the the designation of orphan drugs is in part to not just to treat an orphan disease, but it's also about incentivizing drug development, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think that's the whole point that it was recognized, has been recognized for many years that 
rare and particularly ultra rare diseases, which I think encompasses the vast majority of inherited metabolic diseases that we're focused on, have been neglected in the past. And the purpose of recognizing this category of disease and designating diseases as orphan and rare and ultra rare has been to encourage pharmaceutical companies to get involved in this space. Of course, there are other reasons they might want to do so too, because unlike a lot of common diseases, we do have the advantage in most inherited metabolic diseases of actually understanding to a greater or lesser extent the molecular basis of these diseases, which means the likelihood that we will have what the pharmaceutical industry likes to refer to as druggable targets is is much greater than for many more common diseases. I think it's difficult to see the orphan legislation as being anything other than a success in that Every drug company now, not just small biotech companies, but big drug companies, big multinationals who make antihypertensives and things all want to have orphan drugs in their portfolios because it turns out they're a very effective way of driving those companies' balance books, really. So on that basis, uh, now there's lots and lots of companies getting into orphan drugs. We've got multiple drugs for for single conditions. So single orphan conditions, LSDs are a very good example. All of a sudden, instead of having no treatments at all, we've got lots of treatments competing with each other in what should be an incredibly small space. And yet they all seem to be viable. So from that point of view, the legislation has been a huge success, but perhaps it needs looking at again. Yes, I would agree. And echoing uh, Mark's point about, you know, the relationship between disease pathophysiology and and appropriate therapeutic targets being more clear in diseases like inherited metabolic diseases, I think are supporting that data that show that drugs developed for inherited metabolic diseases are more likely to come to market. So a higher proportion of those drugs actually do come to market than drugs for common diseases. And that's partly because, you know, the relationship is maybe a little easier to understand. There's an enzyme deficiency and you develop an enzyme. And so that actually does impact on the research and development costs for the pharmaceutical company, because, of course, whenever we think about drugs coming to market, we have to also ensure that the pricing covers all of the drugs that that company spent uh, money and time developing that did not come to market. You've all mentioned costs and incentivization there. We're talking today because of the editorial that you wrote, Lost in Translation, about the challenges around drug development. Drug pricing wasn't something that that came up a lot in that. And I think in many ways, it could be a, a, a subject for a whole podcast in itself. It is a very complicated topic. But we've agreed there is certainly an incentive for companies to develop drugs. But even with that incentive there, it is very hard to then get drugs to market. I don't know if you want to sort of talk about why it's so hard to get new drugs approved. You know, I think it's it's part of the inherent difficulty of studying ultra rare diseases because we have a standard approach to drug approval, which works more or less well for common diseases where you have a large potential pool of participants in clinical trials. And so you generally will have the opportunity to conduct a controlled clinical trial where you can have fairly well-matched control and intervention groups. That becomes extremely challenging if you're dealing with an ultra-rare disease where you may have only a few hundred patients in the world, only a small subgroup of whom may be eligible or interested in participating in a clinical trial, and in which there may be a great deal of variability. So I think there's a big issue there in terms of trial design and in many cases, conducting traditional randomized placebo controlled trials 
really isn't an option that's going to work well. And I think that's one of the barriers to approval of drugs for these disorders. I would agree with that. Another barrier, I think, is that when you are trying to augment your very small pool of potential clinical trial participants by, you know, for example, looking at outcomes in a natural history cohort, for many of the diseases, we do not have good natural history information, which makes that avenue difficult. And in times when it has been done, for example, some of the early Fabre trials, which were discussed against natural history data, which was from the United States dialysis databases. So you understand already that that is a quite a different group of Fabre patients than the majority, the patients, the males on dialysis. So when those flawed natural history data are used, it uh, can be very difficult for regulatory agencies to interpret those data. And so this also makes it uh, difficult when the drugs come uh, before the regulatory agencies. And I think another issue is the timescales over which you can generate meaningful endpoint data with rare diseases. Particularly with genetic diseases, which are lifelong, we tend to be looking at events over, like in February, over a long-term progression. You can do that for common diseases, because if you want to look in patients with ischemic heart disease at myocardial infarctions, they don't happen very often in any individual patient. But because you can look at thousands and thousands of patients with an interventional trial, you can actually collect significant numbers of events uh, within a period of time, you know, six to 12 months that a drug company feels is reasonable for doing a trial. When you've got a rare disease, you can still have events which don't happen very often, uh, but because we've hardly got any patients anymore, you really have to watch those patients for a very long period of time before you can either collect individual events like renal failure in Fabry disease or arrhythmia, or even more difficult, information on disease progression in what are often slowly progressive neurodegenerative diseases, for instance. And the sheer timescale over which you'd have to conduct a clinical trial is really very challenging for everybody involved, not just the pharma companies, but the patients as well. So this is this issue that you can get a drug approved because the studies initially are done with these surrogate endpoints. But actually, once we get these drugs in the hands of patients and the, the, the bodies of patients and we're giving them for a long period of time, we start to have real-life endpoints that might suggest the drug is not as good as we were led to believe. Isn't that fair to say? I, mean, I think going back to what I was saying about what endpoints you choose for clinical trials in rare diseases, what ends up happening is that there's a negotiation between the regulator and the drug developer about what endpoint they're going to use that everybody thinks they will be able to collect in a reasonable amount of time. And you're absolutely right. They often end up with, with surrogate endpoints or with complex scoring systems, which they're collecting, which they hope are going to give them an outcome uh, within a, a manageable point of time. And if they get that, then providing the drug is safe, the regulator will have decided it has met its uh, pre-approved endpoints and therefore it can be licensed as being a safe and effective drug. But you're absolutely right, James. The effectiveness is, is on a set of predefined measures uh, that were defined specifically to give an output in a small number of patients in a short period of time, and therefore are very likely to be of limited utility when it comes to looking at a patient over a lifetime of the disease. And then we run into this problem where the regulators have said yes, but you have to get funding for the drug as well. They tend to be very expensive. And then the people who fund the drug are wanting much more real world data and looking at quality of life and long term outcomes. And we don't necessarily have that data coming out of the clinical trials. So it's then very difficult to make those arguments for funding. I know, Mark, the last time we spoke, 
we were talking about a, a drug that had just had a positive trial published within the journal, but there had then been a slight moving of the goalposts with regards to what the regulators were looking for anyway. Yes, two examples I can give. The one you referred to was a trial where the regulators decided a couple of weeks before they were due to make a decision that they weren't happy with the outcome measure which had been agreed upon, which led to them denying approval for the drug, although it did have a successful short-term trial. So that's a problem. And I think it's it's part of the issue about the, the appreciation of the risk-benefit ratio by the community generally, particularly patients and patient representatives, as opposed to regulators. I will say that the Food and Drug Administration, like many other regulators, has a very high standard and a very low tolerance for risk, I must say, particularly in this population of patients, which uh, in my experience doesn't necessarily align with the, the sense of the community. So I think that's one issue. Obviously, consistency is important for anyone in planning studies. And so, as we said, moving the goalposts at the last minute becomes a problem. There are some solutions, I think, which can be helpful. There's another paper we discussed where a different drug for another ultra-rare disease was given a more or less conditional approval by the European Medicines Agency well over a decade ago, requiring that a registry be established and that safety be monitored. But at the same time, some efficacy data was gathered. And although there was sufficient uncertainty about the short-term trial, which led to this agent not being approved in the United States, when we were able to gather very long-term data, it did support a survival benefit in the drug when it was monitored in that fashion. So one way of addressing this issue of long-term outcomes is to consider giving a conditional approval which requires continued very close monitoring, which could address the issues that Robin brought up of all aspects of the disease, I think, not just a single surrogate outcome measure or a composite scale. And then I think at the end of that period, if the agent has proved to be successful, great. If not, then it, it won't get full approval. So I think that that's one approach. The other is to consider that the traditional clinical trial models that we have don't work very well, as we've said, for these ultra-rare diseases. And so perhaps we should be looking at adaptive and innovative trial designs. In fact, in the United States, the 21st Century Cures Act, which was passed six years ago, mandated that. The Food and Drug Administration actually has given seminars. It has data on its website supporting that. But they've been very slow to implement that approach, which I think is disappointing. And I really hope that they will do so soon because I think it will be very helpful in designing and executing trials for inherited metabolic diseases. In Canada, there is a system where conditional approval can be granted to a drug. But what Canada and other jurisdictions lack is the ability to do anything about it should the real-world evidence actually show that the drug is not effective. So yes, we can put conditional approval and say we need to collect more evidence, but the drug, once on the market, it's very difficult to take off. And in the IMD situation, I think, you know, if there was a cancer drug that did not show good efficacy in real-world evidence collection as, as more than 30% of cancer drugs that get accelerated approvals do not show efficacy in real-world data collection, then the oncologist will stop using it. 
because they will go back to the previous therapy that, that was used before that new therapy. But in inherited metabolic diseases, I can think of many examples where the real world evidence does show that the drug has very limited or no effectiveness, especially in certain routes of administration. And yet, because there are no alternatives patients continue to use it. And to me, this is a big problem because the drug may have very limited effectiveness or no effectiveness, but the patients are still being exposed to the side effects of both the drug and the potential route of administration. So so in addition to having conditional approval, what I think is really important about that is that you have the means to do something with the real world evidence that is collected. And the second point that I think is really important is that that real world evidence collection has to be independent so that we see all of the real world evidence collection. And I cite the Fabry disease example where we you know, certainly have uh, real world evidence collection on many thousands of patients from the different large pharmaceutical registries, but you consistently see publications that look at 300 patients where we have renal data, right? So there's very select population. And if you really want to see what a drug does in real world evidence, we have to be able to look at all of the data and therefore or it needs to be independent from the manufacturer. I feel a bit like you're looking over my shoulder because that was the next question I had was how do we how do we go about taking drugs away? Um, I think within the UK, it's, it's sometimes taken out of our hands. We just get told things won't get funded anymore. But even that's difficult and probably quite controversial. Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with that uh, because it's really, really difficult. And I think so. First of all, I think it's really important that we engage the patient voice in these decisions so that so that everybody is aware, including the patients who are taking the drug without well-defined benefits, that if the drug is not going to be a benefit at the end, that they need to stop taking the drug. And so it's really important that we engage the patients both in that conversation, but also that we get the patient perspective in defining what they think are reasonable benefits, right? And that has to happen at the beginning and not at the end, you know, not after the person has been on drug for a long time. You know, if, if you said to somebody, I'm putting you on this drug for your blood pressure and the next time you came back and the blood pressure was way worse, the person would say, well, why should I keep taking it? Right. But this is the conversation we don't have in rare diseases. And then secondly, I think participation in these real world evidence collection registries needs to be mandatory. And I, I believe that patients would support that. There's literature, as Mark mentioned, I think, uh, already that, uh, that patients have much more risk tolerance than regulatory agencies. And they actually believe that their data, I think, is being shared more than it is. And I, I don't think individual patient data needs to be shared. Obviously, it needs to be anonymous data. But if you're going to take a drug for which there are major unanswered questions at the time of market entry, and we need to have real-world evidence collection to actually see if the drug is doing anything for patients other than harming them, then I think your agreement to take the drug has to be conditional on you contributing your, your anonymous data to that data collection. It's very difficult to, to stop a drug. Again, this is another reason why the current structures and recognized ways of doing clinical trials and funded things don't necessarily work for rare genetic diseases. We're not talking about a course of treatment. So you don't have a course of treatment and then whatever's wrong with you is either cured or it's progressed and you don't need the treatment anymore. And as Sandra said, we're not talking about blood pressure or cholesterol, where we know we can treat a population to achieve a numerical value of something that is going to reduce their risk. And so we know what we're aiming at, and we often have many different tools in our box to do that. Unfortunately, we tend to be not curing these diseases, but 
lifetime treatments that may modify the, the trajectory of those patients. And that's why I think we're very bad at uh, developing stop criteria, knowing to say when actually we've got as much benefit out of this intervention as we possibly can. And it's time now to stop it and to concentrate on other things, which unfortunately are often palliation. And I think we need to be better at that. But without being honest about that up front and telling someone when they start a drug that this may not go on forever, we're trying to achieve A, B and C. And when we get to point C, D and E, we may have to stop. Unless you tell them at the beginning, uh, then I think it is extremely difficult to stop drugs. And what we end up doing in the UK, you say they can withdraw drugs. They do do that or they threaten to do that. But actually, the patients who are already on treatment are normally excluded from that. So if you're on treatment, you're allowed to keep going on. But what we won't do is start any new patients on treatment. And that clearly has real problems with equity and with access and isn't an ideal solution to anything. I mean, you've, you've talked a bit about different kinds of endpoints. Something that you cover within the editorial is the move towards more patient-reported outcome measures and how we might use those. Obviously, those are quite subjective. And um, how will patient-reported outcome measures work and how will we decide them? I'll take that first, if you like. I mean, although there is a big regulatory emphasis on patient-reported outcomes, they can be really problematic in these diseases. We've just completed a phase three clinical trial of a new enzyme replacement therapy where they were very keen on collecting patient-reported outcome data. But the problem we ran into is although everything you could measure got better, the patient-reported outcomes didn't. And that's because the patients with genetic long-term diseases didn't realize how ill they were at the beginning until they got better. So they were scoring themselves as having a pretty good quality of life at the start. And then three or four years later, they still had a pretty good quality of life. If you ask them in retrospect, it was much better than it was before. But the tools we were using weren't sensitive enough to pick that out. So uh, I think patient-reported outcomes can be very difficult. I think Robin, as always, makes a, a very good point. But I think we can improve the tools. And, you know, putting on my neurologist's hat here, there are some things which may not seem like major changes to all of us, but can make a huge change to patients. So, you know, can you make transfers? Can you walk the length of your room? Can you get to the bathroom? These sort of things can be quantitated to a certain degree. But coming back to our point before about the heterogeneity of these diseases that Sandra emphasized, I think we may have to tailor endpoints to individual patients because of the heterogeneity of ultra-rare diseases. And that's where innovative trial designs, even multiple N of one trial designs, if you've got a very variable disease, may be the best approach to demonstrating benefit of a treatment. Yeah, and I might just add, I agree with both Robin and Mark there. The N of one trial design really has a lot of strengths, and I'm sure we've all done it in our clinical practice. I think we need to combine, though, patient input on what outcomes they think are relevant to them with, you know, the thing is, is that we don't just want patients to feel better, they need to feel better and actually be better, right? If we just wanted patients to feel better, we would uh, just give them all a lovely bottle of Merlot and call it a day, you know? <laughs> so there needs to be some combination. And one of the things that I find frustrating is that sometimes the way to make a person feel better is to get them funding for the lift that they need in their home so that they can easily go upstairs or get more uh, support so that they a child functions better in school. And yet, because there's such a focus on drugs, 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 we are not looking at what this patient needs in totality. 
right? And so some of the drugs that we are paying $500,000, $600,000 or more for a year actually provide less functional benefit to the patient than a really good physiotherapist would. But yet the funding baskets, the funding from government or from insurers is so siloed that we don't have this ability to say what would make this patient feel better, right? And that, that I think, is a discussion that, uh, that we, you know, would benefit from having. A lot of bottles of Merlot, isn't it, 500,000? Yes. yes. <laughs> We're not, like, we haven't seen us do a trial for that yet. Um, it's always the first time. Um, I mean, obviously, I appreciate we're talking about drugs, but Mark, we've talked about a food stuff um, Epica teaching, yes. uh, which I think is in Merlot, um, as it happens, for, for Frederick's ataxia. I've also spoken about um, Genistein in another podcast, our sort of positive negatives podcast, where I highlighted the importance of doing studies on things that don't work. But with families and clinicians who need to do something for their patients, how do we manage investigating the efficacy of these non-drugs where there isn't a financial interest in improving efficacy or disproving efficacy even? Yeah, I, I think that really addresses the big problem, which is is getting funding for studies which are extraordinarily expensive to do just because of their nature and because of the stringent requirements of regulators. So you're right, they're they're not just orphan diseases, but orphan products. And I think that a lot of supplements tend to fall into that category. We know, of course, there are dietary measures for a number of disorders, particularly the small molecule diseases, which make a huge difference. And how one would mount a trial these days of diet for those disorders, I think, is a, is a really good question. And I'd just like to echo what Sandra emphasized before about the fact there are so many interventions that can make a difference to the quality of life for patients that we really have to be very attentive to controlling that when we're conducting a study. Because, you know, I, I think we're all aware of the fact that patients participating in almost any sort of clinical trial tend to do better than those who aren't, partly because they're often receiving care from expert centers. Just the mere fact of participation in the trial will often make people feel better. So I think there are a lot of, a lot of additional factors we, we need to keep in mind when designing and executing trials. But controlling these other variables, I think, is a really important point to keep in mind because we can't not provide the best possible care for our patients, but we have to find a way to factor in those other interventions other than the drug or supplement that's being studied. But it is very difficult now to get to something to the point of being a licensed drug or a licensed treatment for an indication without having a pharma company sitting behind you. So I think what you're saying, James, is yes, there are lots of things out there that you could buy from Amazon probably uh, that might be very useful in some of the diseases we deal with. But it's almost impossible for anyone to design a clinical trial for those that would end up with it being an approved treatment uh, without at the same time that suddenly becoming an orphan drug with everything that goes with being an orphan drug. And that, that's, a, that's a very unfortunate side effect, if you like, of the orphan drug process and legislation, I think. I assume we should have mentioned chenodoxycholic acid at this stage. Indeed, a good example. Orchalic acid as well. I mean, both of those bile acids were readily and cheaply available, uh, but aren't anymore. Betaine, 
the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want you guys to seem like Statler and Waldolf and just complain about everything. So, I mean, you've talked about some ideas throughout as to how we can make things better, but I guess it'd be nice to sort of wrap things up by saying, what are your hopes that are things that we can do that are going to make things better for clinicians, for patients, for families working with rare disease? Maybe I'll make a comment to begin with. I, I'm very encouraged by the fact that there is legislation that recognises the special challenges for ultra-rare diseases. So I think that's a big positive. I think it's a matter of the community working together, continuing to advocate to do our best to ensure that regulators embrace this legislation and adhere to its guidance. I think the other development, which is an important one, and just harking back to my colleagues' comments, is recognising the importance of independent data sources you know, one approach I've been involved in has been the development of a patient-owned data registry. And negotiations have been conducted with regulators to make sure that the data will be of appropriate nature and quality to be used for regulatory purposes. Pharmaceutical partners have been engaged as well. And I think the fact that communities are coming together in this fashion is really a very important development. The other comment I'll make about this registry is that it has two components. One is data that's entered from medical records, but the other is patient-entered data. And there is a formatted form of that, but there's also a free text option because a lot of the time we can learn and modify the type of data we collect based on parents' and patients' observations, which are so rich. So I, I think there are a lot of positive developments. I think we have a lot of work to do, but I, I think if we work together as a community, we will get to a much better place than we're in now. Yeah, I'd agree with Mark. I mean, there have been a lot of positives out of this, and we do now have a number of highly effective treatments for rare diseases that we probably wouldn't have had without orphan drug legislation. There will be more to come. There are gene therapies coming along, there are mRNA therapies coming along that are really innovative that will go through this procedure, and some of them will undoubtedly prove to be effective. But what we're also now seeing is that instead of seeing treatments for new diseases that are untreatable coming along, we're getting more and more treatments for the same diseases, uh, and more and more very similar treatments for the same diseases. And therefore, I think it's time to ask whether the process we have at the moment is close to being saturated with what it can achieve, and yet we've still got an awful lot of unmet need. We've got a lot of diseases for which we have no treatments at all and for which nobody's showing any interest in developing any treatments. Uh, and we have a lot of treatments, as Sandra was saying, that aren't necessarily as, as good as we'd like them to be. So it's really a chance to look at where we are, reassess uh, how do we take a more long-term view of the long-term outcomes of these things and how do we get a more inclusive view of trying to get people to develop treatments for diseases which haven't so far uh, been appealing to drug companies using the orphan drug legislation, I think. Yes, I, I completely agree with everything that Mark and Robin have said. Like to me, the key is collaboration. The patient groups actually do this, right? I, I know all kinds of patients with rare diseases who know somebody uh, on another continent with the same rare disease. And the patient groups actually do a better job, I think, of communicating across geographic boundaries than, uh, than clinicians. The IMD clinicians uh, in general are actually a pretty tight group, you know, like with a single email. I'm sure Robin can get 
more than half of the people involved in Fabry disease in the world, for example, but we could do better. So where I think I really would like to see the focus on collaboration is on real world data collection that is international, independent, and available to all the regulatory agencies so that we really actually can get data on more patients faster. And this this logistically is very, very difficult. But when you're talking about the ultra-rare diseases, I think uh, this is the way that we have to move forward in order to actually get some good data on whether or not their drugs actually work. I mean, I think that patients deserve that. They deserve to know if the drug they're taking actually works. More than just the hope. Hope is really important. But more than just the hope, at some point, they need to know if all of this time and side effects and, you know, family stresses to get this drug to them are worth it. And the patients need high quality data in order to know that. And if it does work, then everyone should be able to get it. There is a real problem with equity of access. Um, And it shouldn't just be available in the US and parts of Europe. It should be available to patients all over the world who need it. I agree. I'm not sure how we're going to um, fix that last one, <laughs> just to throw it in. But yeah, obviously that would be wonderful. And it's so difficult to to see families across the world who have no access to dietary therapies, clinicians, dietitians, and, and any of these medications. So it's, um, it is really difficult. It is wonderful to hear from the three of you. You're all such eloquent speakers. It's been a real treat to, to have you on the podcast. If you would like to read Robin, Mark and Sandra's editorial, please click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to hear Robin and Sandra talking about um, orphan medicinal products, old myths and new realities, if you Google Record RT Rare webinar on orphan drugs, you will find them speaking about that. And if you'd like to hear... Well, just anything being said by Mark, really, do check out our podcast collection. I know he's one of the favourite voices on the podcast. Um, Mark, Robin and and Sandra, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, James. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks very much. Robin, well done for keeping the peacocks quiet. (laughs) Um, I was pressing mute from time to time. I'm glad it didn't come through. (laughs) And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.